The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of 9-11 Freefall. I am the host, Andy Steele. We got a lot to talk about tonight, uh, so let me just go ahead and bring our guests in. The first one is Richard Johns. He's an instructor of philosophy at Langora College. He has an under degree in math and engineering, including studying theoretical mechanics. Uh, one of his main publications is a technical monograph about physical probability, published by the University of Toronto Press. As well, he is a co-author with engineer Tony Zambodi on the paper refuting Zdenek Bizant's paper on the, quote, collapse of the Twin Towers that NIST essentially adopted into its official narrative. So we'll be talking a little bit more about that today. And uh, he's joined also by Ted Walter. Ted, of course, is the Director of Strategy and Development here at AE911 Truth. He holds a Master's of Public Policy degree from the University of California, Berkeley. Prior to his current role with AE, he was director of NYC CAN's 2014 High Rise Safety Initiative, uh, volunteer campaign manager for AE's Rethink 9-11 campaign, and director of NYC CAN's uh, 2009 ballot initiative. He's also the lead author of the booklet Beyond Misinformation, as well as World Trade Center Physics and uh, the request for correction uh, to NIST World Trade Center 7 report and he's been uh step by step in this entire process we'll be talking about today with these gentlemen so guys welcome to 9-11 freefall thanks andy great to be so, here. uh thanks, thanks yeah thanks for inviting yeah. me yeah Ted, it's a very long story arc, almost like a continuing soap opera you got to follow every single episode for. Of course, we're not going to make everybody do that. New viewers coming in. So just briefly give a summary of the issue at hand, all the steps that led up to this new development. Sure. So I think mainly what we're talking about today is the discussion paper that Richard and uh, his co-author, Tony Zambodi, submitted uh, back in 2011. Uh, to the Journal of Engineering Mechanics, which was critiquing uh, a paper by Jia Leng Lei and Zdenek Bizant. It was probably, I think, the fourth paper that uh, Bizant had published on the collapse of the Twin Towers. And in this one, he, Bizant was trying to explain how the top of the North Tower could come down um, as rapidly as it did without observably decelerating. And so if you study the, you know, the, the acceleration of the top section, it never slows down. Bizant tried to claim, Bizant and Lay tried to claim that you can't see it slowing down because the deceleration is so small. There has to be a deceleration in order for the top section to actually destroy the bottom section. That's where the, that's where the energy is imparted. When the top section hits the lower section, this destroys it, it's supposed it's going to slow down. And you don't see that in the video footage. So Richard and, and Tony looked at Bizant's analysis as they had been doing for some years, kind of starting to critique his work and, and realized that there were some errors in, the, in his paper. The numbers, that, the values that he was using for various features of the tower uh, resulted in, in, a, 
and in, in the incorrect conclusion, if you actually corrected the values used in the, in the analysis, it shows that the top would have slowed down very observably, very noticeably, significantly. Um, and so uh, this was in May of 2011 when they submitted that paper. Uh, it's a long story, as you said, which many of our listeners know, but not, not all the listeners know. And I'm sure Richard could tell a lot of it as well. Uh, but here we are 11 years later, still trying to get this paper published uh, because Byzance analysis, lay in Byzance analysis, is so important in propping up the official story of what happened on 9-11. Uh, Byzant is a very famous, uh, widely, widely renowned um, figure in the engineering field. And he has provided the primary analysis that explains, according to the official story, how the Twin Towers came down. And so that is why we are putting so much attention on uh, refuting his analysis and why Richard's paper uh, is so important and why we're still fighting to get it published in the Journal of Engineering Mechanics 11 years later. That's right. We need a scholarly paper to tell people what's common sense. The top part of a building can't crush the lower part without slowing down. I'm being a little facetious, but apparently uh, NIST, Bazan, ASC, all of them need some uh, kind of proof on paper. So I want to turn to Richard. It's your first time on the show and uh, we've been talking about this paper for a long time, but we haven't gotten your perspective. So start off by telling uh, us why you jumped into the fray and wrote this paper, and then talk about the process, the ins and outs of this, uh, everything that uh, Ted has been covering here on Freefall for the past year uh, from your own perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to look up a few old emails yesterday because, you know, I couldn't quite remember how it all happened, but... Um, I did make a post on a website, 9-11 Blogger. Some of your readers and listeners might know about that. Um, sort of a sharing of information about 9-11. And um, I'd already um, talked to an engineer friend of mine, a guy called Rob, who um, he's the first person who told me there was something kind of fishy about the way the towers came down. Um, and he'd already signed the um, 9-11 Truths petition as he's a civil engineer. Um, yeah, and um, it's funny because when he told me that, it sort of reminded me of what I'd felt at the time, you know, watching the collapses on TV. Um, just I, I never realized that a, a building could sort of um, just destroy itself, um, just kind of fall apart like a, like a banana, sort of unpeeling itself um, just by its own weight. You know, I, I, I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, I remember even I... Um, I remembered from earlier that some, somewhere I'd heard that, that a, a skyscraper is held together with, by a high-tension high steel cable down the middle, which is completely wrong. Okay, I don't know where I, I got that, but it kind of made sense to me at the time because I thought, well, if a plane kind of severed that cable, then, you know, the whole thing's just going to fall apart. I, I had to sort of imagine all kinds of um, completely uh, crazy things to, to try and understand how the building could have fallen down the way it did. Um, anyway, so when when Rob told me that what he thought, I um, I thought I should look at this because I teach critical thinking to my students, and this is a great example. There's probably tons of evidence out there, tons of data, and I did kind of think that, you know, digging into it, uh, I would find that you know there wasn't going to be much evidence of any foul play or anything, that probably the engineers had it under control, but it wasn't like that. Um, immediately it did seem like there was a problem that the column resistance during buckling had to be extremely low, virtually zero. 
and um, you know that that conflicted with the research I was doing on um, you know how how um, steel columns continue to offer quite a bit of resistance even after they're past the point of failure and they're actually kind of buckling or squashing. Anyway, so yeah, I made this blog post and um, that sort of put me in touch with Tony, Tony Sambodi, and he put me in touch with other people like Robert Coral, uh, an engineer at McMaster. Yeah, so that's where it started for me. <clears throat> Very interesting. And, uh, you know, what you guys did, you and Tony, by writing this paper and, of course, Ted's help in uh, this whole process has really revealed a lot about the institutions, at least to me, about the institutions that were told are authorities. To me, it seems more about politics than any kind of real science. Um, <clears throat> so let's get into the content of the paper. Uh, we've talked about it with Ted and Ted, feel free to chime in when you feel appropriate. But uh, Richard, can you just give our audience an overview of uh, what you've laid out here in refuting Bizant? Yeah, so it is uh, a discussion paper that we wrote. So we're not advancing some new theory in the paper. We're simply responding to the theory that they put forward. And, um, you know, their theory, you can sort of break into two parts. There's the sort of, um, yeah, the theoretical aspect of it. Um, how, what happens when the column buckles and how do you look at that from an engineering mechanics point of view to calculate the resistance and so forth. But then there's also the actual numbers, right? We're not just giving a theoretical analysis of, you know, some abstract building collapse, but a particular structure. So then you need to know the mass of the structure, you know, how much mass per story. Uh, you need to know what type of steel, what, what were the um, geometry of those columns, thickness of the plates, all of that. Yeah, so we made no criticism of the theory, but only the, um, the actual data. Um, it's interesting about that paper and others. They give very sketchy, uh, or very very little information uh, about the actual data. They don't just say we're assuming these columns with these dimensions. They give much uh, less direct numbers, like the plastic moment and you know the things that are calculated from those more fundamental data. Anyway, so so they don't essentially show their work very much in the paper, and they don't give the numbers. They don't give you enough numbers to reproduce their calculations. Um, and also, the numbers they did give were actually, um, if you do the, a little bit of math, you can see they're not consistent with the numbers given in the government reports, the NIST reports. Yeah, so essentially, we're just saying, look, if we, if we rerun the calculations, because we can't use your data, you don't give them. If we rerun the calculations using the NIST data, then you don't get a total collapse. You get a, a collapse of maybe a couple stories, and then you get to, the whole thing stops. The, the top of the building just stops falling. Right. And uh, there's been hypothetical fictional scenarios that get this right. I've seen in movies. Well, NIST gets it wrong. You see sometimes the, when uh, parts where the towers get severed at a certain place, that's supposed to crush down a little bit and then stop. This has sort of been uh, our position and the 9-11 Truth Movement's position for many years. Uh, and indeed, that's what we should have seen that day. And, and when you look at NIST or, well, Bazant's uh, diagrams as it comes down. You can see that they, they claim there's like two phases of collapse that crush down and then somehow this uh, top block just disappears in the first uh, in the last couple of seconds of its fall because we don't see a top block sitting on the rubble there at ground zero. Uh, Ted, listening to all of that, what's your, I, I know you've already kind of talked about this a little bit in previous interviews, but give this audience your take 
on the paper and uh, add anything um, that you feel appropriate. Well, I think Richard described it pretty well. Um, and I think, you know, what is interesting here, I mean, the paper is very important um, and very appropriate for the journal to publish. Uh, what, what becomes interesting is the fact that the journal eventually, after two years, uh, rejected the paper as being out of scope for the journal. Uh, so just on its face, it's totally ludicrous for a discussion paper that is merely commenting on you know, the particulars of, analysis, of an analysis in a, in a previously published paper to be considered out of scope. Uh, the, the paper, it took the journal a year to render a, an initial decision on the paper, uh, literally to the day, a year after Richard and Tony submitted their discussion paper, it was rejected by the journal on technical grounds, uh, but very specious technical grounds. And so um, this was in May of 2012, Richard and Tony very quickly uh, wrote a rebuttal of the reviewers' comments around that time, and then were invited to submit a revised manuscript, uh, making you know fairly minor changes to the paper to address some of the reviewers' comments. But by and large, you know, the reviewers' comments and Richard can uh, go into it better than I can. But the reviewers' comments were really um, you know specious and uh, you know not very substantive and the, the things that were legitimate could have, were, were easily fixed. And, and so at that time, Richard and Tony thought that their paper was going to be finally be published after waiting, you know, over a year. Uh, and then suddenly they waited a whole other year, uh, hearing nothing from the journal. And finally in August of 2013, um, you know, starting like 27 months after they first submitted their paper, it was rejected as being out of scope. Now there's a whole, there's a lot of details from like the submission of the revised manuscript in 2012 to the final rejection as out of scope in 2013. A new editor joined the journal uh, it, during that time. Uh, the first editor who was there was his name was Casper Willem. Uh, he um, he was a contractor on the NIST investigation. Uh, so right there, you you have a, a bit of a conflict of interest. Uh, Ballerini joins the journal and eventually gets involved in reviewing this paper because Willem is just doing nothing with it. And it turns out that Ballerini is a, is a colleague um, at the University of Minnesota with the other co-author of the original paper, Jialing Lei, who wrote the paper with Bizant. Um, he, he literally, he was the head of, Ballerini was the head of the department. So he basically hired Lei as a professor there. And then they were co-authoring papers together at the very time that Ballerini starts reviewing Richard and Tony's paper. And he makes no, um, you know, you're supposed to announce if you have a conflict of interest or recuse yourself from reviewing the paper. Ballerini doesn't do that. He gets involved in reviewing the paper. It seems like he's going to review it, honestly, because he's actually interfacing with Richard and Tony a little bit during the summer of 2013. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, he says, I'm going to have a meeting with uh, Willem at, at our annual conference in, in August, and then we'll get back to you with a decision. We're thinking it's going to be positive because I was – you know, I was talking to Tony and Richard at this time. I was aware of what was going on and really pulling for them. And then suddenly they hear in, in August of 2013, no, it's rejected as out of scope. There's no technical basis for the rejection. And, you know, it's just, you know, I, I've already said it. It's totally ludicrous to reject it. this kind of paper is out of scope. And basically it just means that, you know, and Valerie said it. He's like, I don't want to discuss this issue anymore. The journal, you know, time for the journal to move on. And, hey, if you want to change the editorial scope of your journal, that's fine, right? But up until now, this has been the primary venue in the in the engineering 
uh, community for discussing this topic. Um, and they submitted their discussion paper on time and it is directly related to paper you published. Like after you publish their paper, you wanna change the scope, fine, but their paper should be published. And it's correcting very serious errors in the original paper. So, um, you know, Richard can speak to it as well, but that's, you know, that's, so that's where this starts an even longer story that, that goes on until this point here, trying to get this paper published because we finally in 2018, Richard and Tony, along with 10 ASCE members, uh, filed an ethics complaint against the two editors uh, basically saying that rejecting the paper as out of scope uh, violated the ASC's code of ethics on for several reasons. So we can we can get into that more as well. I'm going to ask Richard to comment further. However, I just want to ask you, Ted, uh, when they say it's out of scope, do they give some kind of explanation as to why it's out of scope? I know because we get so many people contacting us about things that have nothing to do with the topic that we're on, and I have to tell people, sorry, that's off topic for us. I can decide that in one minute just by looking at the content of the email or whatever. I understand a journal's a little different, but you know, for takes so long to come back without a scope, is there any kind of defense of this decision attempted in their correspondence back to uh, Richard and Tony and, and I guess by extension yourself? Yeah. The only, I mean, the only th thing that they said in the decision letter was that the journal is not a place for a never ending, you know, forensic debate about a specific building collapse and and that's why it's out of scope um so yeah general they want general principles of engineering mechanics you know to be the focus you know new techniques for analyzing things as opposed to arguing about just this one case yeah but they're the ones who published their that journal published numerous papers by Byzant, who was the chief editor of that journal in the 1980s um so this is finishing the conversation on on Byzant's papers and you know mm -hmm. the scientific yeah process dictates that that paper should have been published. Richard, go ahead. Well, I'll, and I'll just say, if you want to look at a way to analyze these things in a, a way and study that, then observe the laws of physics. That's a new concept here that they could apply in this matter because it appears that Bazant did not. Richard, uh, please uh, add on to that and comment. Well, it, it's ironic. I was just um, reviewing some old emails from, you know, 2010. And um, after I first started to, you know, I thought I had a, a real problem. I found a real problem with Byzant's paper from 2002. I, um, I wrote to the editor of the Journal of Engineering Mechanics to let him know that there, there was this problem and, you know, he would know how to proceed. And um, he said, well, it's been a long time, you know, uh, so rather than uh, immediately submitting anything to the journal, why don't you just contact Byzant directly? Um, although he did also say, you're, um, I've just got it written down here, you're welcome to, to write an article uh, and submit it to JAM, you know, go through peer review and so on. So he invited, you know, he said there, you know, this is totally the thing we'd want to talk about. And then I did exchange a few emails with Bazant about this, who basically, unfortunately, just kind of played dumb and um, didn't uh, address my um, request to actually get the numbers uh, that were missing from his paper. But anyway... He, he ended up saying, look, I don't have time for this. Uh, you just go and read a book on engineering mechanics kind of thing. But then he said, and of course, you're welcome to write a, a paper <laughs> for the Journal of Engineering Mechanics, and then, then I'll have to respond in detail, right? So both uh, Karotis, the, the editor of the journal, and Byzant, uh, he was the editor just before uh, Willem, um, both he and Byzant said, yeah, of course, go ahead and write, a, write an article for the Journal of Engineering Mechanics. And then they tell us, oh, sorry, it's out of scope. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wanted to. I was going to ask you about that, and but we're going to actually return to that later because I want to get to uh, the the meat of today's program and why we're all meeting here. So, uh, so to be continued. But uh, Ted, give the give our audience the lowdown on the recent development. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> basically, after three and a half years of this ethics complaint, uh, which had many twists and turns to it, uh, as recently as I mean, well halfway through the ethics complaint, we had an outside uh, organization, like third party kind of review the complaint and review the whole case. And uh, sadly, uh, somebody in the journals department of the ASCE and uh, Ballerini himself, what the, he was still the one of the two co-editors, still the editor several years later, uh, basically lied to uh, the Committee on Publication Ethics, this outside group who was looking at our case, saying that Ballerini was not directly involved in reviewing the paper. And we had all the email correspondence to prove that he was the person involved and was the head of, you know, re really was the person who made the decision at the end. Um, and also that they tried to claim, they claimed that, you know, that the ASCE claimed that, oh, it wasn't rejected for being out of scope. It was rejected on technical grounds. You go back and review the decision letter and it's very clear this paper, we're rejecting this paper because it is out of scope. Like it's, it's unambiguous, you know, so, we were going to, the idea was together with the ASCE to go to this outside group to get constructive, you know, advice on how to handle this matter, you know, and sadly Ballerini and the ASCE lied to uh, cope. And once we brought that, once that happened and that process was finished and cope basically took their word for it, um, we submitted an amendment to the ethics complaint basically showing that Ballerini and the member of the journal staff at ASCE lied to cope. And it just so happened that that coincided with a new editor being at the journal. And so we brought this new amendment and we said, look, uh, we have this additional claim against Ballerini. He and this ASCE staff person lied to cope. But in addition to that, you have a new editor. How about giving this new editor an opportunity to do what we were doing, trying to get all along, which was Ballerini or somebody at the journal to re-review this paper and publish it if no issues are found with the paper. Um, so the new editor this past spring agreed to do that. Um, his name is uh, Franz Joseph Ulm. He became the editor, you know, a, you know, a year, year, year and a half ago. Um, we're, so this was the goal all along with the ethics complaint, get the new review, but of course, Richard and Tony and the rest of us who are helping them are, are, are concerned is, is all I'm going to do a fair review. You know, is he going to review it in good faith? Uh, and sadly we found out that he, that he didn't, you know, within, within a month of when he agreed to review the, do a new review of the paper, he rejected it. And the, the ethics complaint said very clearly, like the, re the, the remedy put forth in the ethics complaint was we will stop this, this ethics complaint. If, you know, we can get, a fair review of the paper and either have it be published or have it receive a technically reasoned decision not to publish the paper. So actually explain what's wrong with it. If there's really something wrong with the paper, um, Alm like did exactly the opposite of that. Uh, he rejected the paper and basically had one sentence in his, in his letter where he said, we have read the earlier editorial review and I have it up here, you know, so I can read it. We have the, we've read the earlier editorial review and concur with its arguments on scientific grounds. And he doesn't elaborate any further. Um, and so Richard and Tony appealed that 
that decision. At first, we were like, we're just going to screw this. He's not giving us fair review. But we're like, okay, well, we'll appeal it once and ask him to actually explain and make it clear because it seemed like the, the folks at ASCE, the staff at ASCE, didn't make it clear clear enough to Ulm that this was a very special situation where, hey, maybe you review papers all the time and reject them without giving any basis whatsoever. But this is a situation where you actually have to do because this paper was already uh, subjected to biased review. And like we're trying to, to write that now. And um, but it felt, it felt like nobody at ASC wanted to acknowledge that something wrong was done in the past. They were just like, oh, here's a way to get rid of this issue. Let's have all review it, treat it like a brand new review. So um, so they appealed it and said, look, this is the terms of our ethics complaint. Like you actually, if you're going to reject it, not publish it, you actually have to explain what is wrong with you. I have to explain why you will agree with the original reviewer's comments and why you disagree with our rebuttals. Um, he, uh, you know, we didn't know what to expect, but they submitted that appeal in June. Uh, we waited a couple months. Tony Zambodi finally recently followed up with the journal, with, with the, um, with the ASCE to see what was going on. Turns out that she emailed him a month or two ago with Alm's decision when he had emailed her earlier and he didn't see it. Uh, but the long and short of it is, again, a re rejected single paragraph, single sentence. He says, uh, the editor believes that the technical rebuttal commentary you provided is irrelevant based on technical merit. That's it. So what does that mean? Irrelevant based on technical merit. Irrelevant is an odd term. I mean, just flawed, I suppose. I, I can't, I can't, like he's just saying something about the paper is so flawed that it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what arguments, what rebuttals you have. Yeah. It's just inherently flawed. So, um, I mean, there, he should explain. So, so, so this, we learned this in the past week. And the next step that we're, that we're doing now is we're basically going to resume the ethics complaint because uh, Dr. Ulm did not give Richard and Tony what they were asking for, what was agreed upon when this review, this new review started, which was either publish it or give us a reason, a real reason why this should be published. That, that didn't happen. Uh, so the remedy was not met and we're gonna have to continue the ethics complaint unless somebody at ASCE can get um, to actually, you know, provide a technically reasoned decision, which I doubt is going to happen. And I just want to say before we turn to Richard here, I, yesterday I asked Ted for a copy of the rejection letter. I was expecting to pour through pages and pages and pick things out for this show. It turns out it was only one paragraph, so it really was that brief and uh, non-technical, just a brush off. Uh, Richard, your response to everything Ted just laid out for this audience. Yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, the word irrelevant is a, it's an odd word to use. You know, he might have said, you know, I reviewed uh, all the rebuttal points that we made to the original reviewer um, back one year after submission. And, you know, I agree with the reviewer or something like that. But, um, you know, if you if you actually looked at that document, it's a couple of pages, a rebuttal document, um, the problems with the original reviewer, they're not sort of esoteric. They're not things that, you know, only... Uh, highly qualified engineer could understand. I mean, for one thing, I'm not actually, I mean, I trained, but I, I didn't, uh, I, I'm not actually working as an engineer. Most of them are things like, um, they said, oh, you used the wrong formula 
for uh, calculating the plastic moment, you know. And so we said, well, actually, you know, <laughs> here's the engineering textbook, right? Standard book, page, whatever, you know, here's the formula. Um, you know, we, we, we did uh, simplify it a bit because we've got thin walled sections, but, um, you know, we, that, that's the kind of level. Or, or, or uh, at one point we quoted some figures from a, a Byzant paper and the, and the reviewer said, oh, he ne Byzant never had those figures. And we're like, well, if you look at page such and such, there they are. <laughs> you know, it's at this level, right? And um, there was hardly any really substantial uh, engineering um, comment commentary in that original review. It was, it was at that level, yeah. To say that, for anybody to say that they agree with the comments of the original reviewer and, and well, to not explain why, but just to say it is, is just ludicrous. Like, like you should have your engineering license like revolt if you would review those comments and agree with them after looking at how Richard and Tony responded. It's all completely laughable, ludicrous stuff. Except the matter is so serious that I almost feel guilty for laughing at it. It's just the absurdity of it all at this point. We're sort of used to it, but we shouldn't be because that's almost a sign that, uh, you know, it's normalizing. But from what I see here, organizations like the ASE, they have so much prestige and power in the engineering world. They're really just uh, protecting the status quo with a spongy membrane of emails and chit chat. Um, and then the fact that uh, you, you were taught corresponding with Bazant over his analysis. And I mean, from what, it, from what it sounds like to me, secondarily hearing the story, it sounds like he was punting the whole issue off to the journal, probably expecting them to just protect it. I'm not going to get into his head or what he was thinking, but that's yeah. what ended up happening as a result. Like he can't be bothered to have his work corrected when it's so just undeniably wrong. I mean, you don't even have to be an engineer to debunk that. You just have to have lived on planet Earth for at least, I mean, up to the ninth grade and uh, have that kind of experience. You can uh, just tell that the that the whole story doesn't make any sense. And so when, it, when the heat starts putting on him, he punts it off to the ASCE, and, of course, they'll find any way that they can to reject it. Uh, as, as being out of scope after such a long time, if it's so out of scope, Seems like you could make that determination a lot quicker. And if it took a long time, if there was a lot of debate and back and forth and dwelling on this, it seems like there'd be a deeper explanation. Um, can you comment on that, Richard, on, on what I just said? Um, yeah, I had a thought while you were talking. <laughs> I remember what it was. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of um, these institutions that have so much authority, um, you know, it's not always um, what you think when you peel back the curtain and, and take a look inside. Um, you know, I was just actually talking to my critical thinking students uh, yesterday about, um, you know, scientific publication and so on. And I, I said, it's a bit like a sausage factory. You know, if you want to eat and enjoy sausages, then you don't visit the factory where they're made. You know, it might sort of turn your stomach a little bit. And, and so academic publishing is somewhat like that. I mean, this is not a very unusual story, unfortunately. I think it's kind of an extreme example, perhaps, but it's not uh, completely, um, you know, an anomaly, right? Um, you, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at Twitter, there's all these jokes about reviewer number three, who's just, uh, you know, completely, <laughs> completely crazy. But I mean, for me, one of the, and this is relatively recently, um, one of the real face-palming moments is when we found out, as, as Ted just mentioned, that uh, Jia Liang Le was um, uh, 
no, sorry, who's is it? Ballerini was working. Yeah, Ballerini was working with Loa um, on papers while he was, you know, giving this unbiased review of our paper. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, this is totally not done. Yeah. Co-workers, he hired him, basically like yeah, lay as a subordinate at the University of Minnesota, you know, yeah. so they, and authoring papers together, he never announced it, never disclosed it during the review process. And then obviously it's so, it's so blatantly unethical that Ballerini, like that Ballerini and the ASE lied to cope the outside organization when they were reviewing this case to yeah. say that Ballerini the, the ballerini wasn't really the one reviewing it. It was all Willem. And no, if you go back and look at the email correspondence, it was obviously ballerini. And despite all that, despite us showing that, so COPE, which ASCE is a member of, right? COPE is this big, like, they're not that big, but they're an organization that has like dozens and dozens of journals and publishers as their members. So they're basically, during this review that they're doing, going to take for take at face value whatever ASCE gives them. So... ASE said, no, 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 it was, it was, um, they rejected on technical grounds. Uh, no, 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 Ballerini wasn't um, reviewing the paper. It was all Willem. Uh, Cope is just going to believe them um, and take, take their word for it. And, and so the, that whole process was not helpful. Um, but I, the fact that, I mean, we then showed that, showed that they lied to Cope, that might be what precipitated this new review. The, 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 the staff at ASE may have been more motivated to say, like, let's not let this disciplinary proceeding happen because it's going to show not only this, like, bad history with this paper, it's going to show that we were lying about it, you know. And so anyway, I mean, that's what, what we're dealing with here. And sadly, the, the lengths that this organization is going to to prevent this paper from being from being published. And it's, you know, I mean, what, what we're what we're talking about. So, and I hope this term doesn't offend anybody, but like, Byzant's papers are sort of like the holy scripture of 9/11 and what happened, and what what the engineering community is supposed to believe about 9/11. And these these Richards and Tony's paper strikes right at the heart of it, and it's sacrilegious, basically. And and so, uh, and are any of these people consciously saying, I want to help cover up? what really happened on 9-11. I want to cover up the demolition of these towers and the murder of 3,000 people. Probably not. I, I, I would wager that most of these, vast majority, if not all of these people, are not willful uh, members, you know, or willful cons conspirers in covering this up. I don't know, maybe Byzant, but I'm not even going to speculate. Uh, I think that, I think that my, my guess, my speculation is that there is something the, the, this this group within the engineering community recognizes some many of them recognize that so, that they got it wrong uh, that somehow a false theory was put forth and accepted by everyone in the engineering community and they don't want to go back and revisit it they just want to they just want to move on and maybe some of them have more skin in the game than others and really do want to protect it because it will make them look bad or, or whatever. But it's sort of, you know, we see stories like this all the time where you have some sort of lie or some, some something bad that happens in a community and the, and the natural response of the of the people, the leadership of that community is to cover it up. And so like, maybe that's the dynamic that's, that's going on here. 
Well, it's, it's probably a combination of a lot of it. I'm going to tell you, I mean, this kind of boils down to just about everything in our society, universities, and you know, these professional organizations such as the ASCE. And I've been on their website, and they have all this flowery stuff about the engineering profession and you know, moving forward with progress to the future and all this stuff. It is all just window dressing. At the end of the day, it's a business. And business is going to do whatever is good for itself. And so if uh, they think that something's bad for business, they're going to avoid it. Nobody does anything they'd rather not do unless they're afraid of something else. So when it's good for business, they'll start looking at this and acknowledging it. But uh, somehow, some way, it's got to be good for business for them. That's where our grassroots activism and project due diligence, excuse me, diligence is uh, coming in and and doing all of that work. But that's kind of how things run here in this world. Um, <clears throat> all right, let's let's uh, let's just uh, step back for a second. Ted, I'm going to have you comment on this because you were talking yesterday about the connections between some of these editors and NIST. Uh, elaborate on that for the audience. Sure. Uh, well, as we mentioned, Casper uh, Willem, who was the editor at the time that Richard and Tony submitted their paper, he actually worked on the NIST investigation. So you can't have a more direct connection there. Um, he, somebody will say, oh, well, this is a paper by different people. This is Byzant and Lay. Uh, but Byzant and Lay's theory is, is the other side and the more important side of the coin of the official story of how the towers came down. Um, how once the top supposedly uh, lost support due to the weakening from the fires, how did the top crush through the 90 stories of structure below it. That's what Byzant and Lay are ultimately trying to explain, um, whereas NIST doesn't go there. So the two work together, uh, the NIST theory of how the top lost support and the Byzant theory of how the top then was able to crush through 90 stories of structure below it. Um, so so the, the editor being having worked for NIST is very relevant. It is a conflict of interest in my view. Uh, there was another discussion paper, uh, just this had been many years, but Byzant and Lay finally published another paper on the World Trade Center uh, failures this past spring in the Journal of Structural Engineering, the ASCE Journal of Structural Engineering. Uh, they were invited to do that. There was some, some series that they were doing for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, looking at progressive collapse and what the engineering community has learned 20 years, 20 years after 9-11. So Byzant and Lay were invited to write a paper was much more of a summary of their of their overall analysis and not as much in the nitty gritty, not the kind of calculations that were in the paper that Richard and Tony were critiquing in 2011. Um, one of our one of our colleagues, Jonathan Cole, uh, saw that saw the new paper by Byzant and decided to write a discussion of that paper. Um, and he actually brought forward some very interesting observations that had never really been connected, like at least that I'm aware of, uh, explicitly connected with refuting Byzant's model of how the towers came towers came down, uh, which is Byzant says that the top section remained intact all the way down to the ground and then sort of crushed itself up once it hit the ground. Um, John Cole looked at the, the entire collapse from the very beginning all the way to the very end, where if anybody watches that far, you see that there's a large remnant of the core structure that remains intact, that remains standing uh, for many, you know, 10 to 15 seconds after the rest of the tower comes down. Um, and if you want, we can. I'll show you some some videos of this. One second. Uh, well, let me just uh, reiterate for the audience because this is the presentation that Jonathan Cole made at our 9/11 anniversary event, Forbidden Truth, where he's showing uh, the spire and how that 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 remaining top sec or that remaining bottom section that uh, and how that correlates with the 
uh, top coming down and refutes what uh, Bazant has to say. And Ted, didn't you say the other day that they rejected it after only a couple of days or something? Yeah. So, so Jonathan Cole uh, submitted this paper like, September 8th or something. And, you know, two days later on that Monday, the following Monday, the Journal of Structural Engineering uh, rejected it as having insufficient technical content. Uh, now, I mean, I, I, I saw the paper before it was published. I, you know, I helped John with it. I reviewed it. Um, and I mean, it's again, ludicrous to, to say that, uh, they're very basic observations, lots of, lots of video and photographic evidence that John actually supplied, which is of, unlike, you know, unlike anything, as Richard said, you know, Byzant, he's, he hides his numbers and he also doesn't really show you the collapse. He doesn't really use any real visual evidence. And that's sort of the key here is that Byzant has come up with this fantasy that actually has no connection to reality, no connection to the observed behavior of the towers as they go down. So John is actually using observation and saying, wait, your model doesn't make sense because you say that the top went all the way down, crushing everything below it. And yet, why do we have these large sections of the core still standing for several seconds after? How can the top pass through the core if the core is still standing? So l let me show you that one video. Right. Well, and actually, uh, we're going to play these videos. I just want to get uh, Richard's reaction first to, to these developments, and then I'll be getting the videos up while he talks here. Yeah, I didn't know that uh, John Cole had um, submitted a paper. I'd like to take a look at that. Um, I just, just, I feel like I used to watch videos made by him many, many years ago in his like backyard melting steel beams and things. Is that the guy? He did some yes. very interesting experiments. Yeah, showing that you actually could cut a steel beam with thermite if you enclose it in some sort of container. Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think actually um, from <laughs> from from a, a point of view of actually just dealing with a paper that you don't want to publish, that's that's a good response from them. I mean, I don't I don't agree with it or approve of it, but. You know, if they just done that with us, they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> kind of back themselves into a corner by first reviewing it and then saying it was out of scope and all this nonsense. Well, yeah. looking at what actually happened does not matter. It's getting to be now where the scientific community trusts animations, cartoons, more than yeah. the actual observed facts on the ground. And you can see right there. Again, watch that presentation, folks, because I, I, you know, I was getting a, a bunch of stuff ready, trying hosting this, and I actually had to stop and pause myself and and zero in on it. it was so interesting. But yeah, that remaining section refutes what Bazant has to say, and that is not sitting there arguing, speculating about what's going on. That's right there on the screen. So Ted, uh, let's talk about what you're going to uh, show us here. Yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna show you the clip, one of the clips that John used in his paper. Uh, this, we believe it was actually filmed by the FBI. Uh, so it is public, uh, you know, you know, public um, whatever, public um, domain. Uh, and I'm just going to show the collapse from the very beginning to the very end. And even people, even students of 9-11 like us, uh, people in our community often forget about looking at the last 10 to 15 seconds. You know, we tend to focus on the very beginning and, and when the whole thing comes down, which John John and Tony do in their paper. And, and that's the interesting thing about they've sort of they've gone at Byzant from the, at the beginning of the collapse, how the motion is too smooth. There's no deceleration. John's paper shows how Byzant's model doesn't work at the end of the collapse. So let's let's take a look at it. It's about, you know, 30 seconds or a little bit longer than that. 
Alright. And now you will start to see this core section that's still standing there. And there's one, one column that's standing very high, about 60 stories high. And so you can start to ask yourself, how did an intact top of the building pass through that structure that's still standing? Yeah, they used to call that the spire. I remember when you know, I was part of these discussions a long time ago. Right. Yeah. Some we do. It's referred to that sometimes that like, people confuse that with the antenna at the top. If you use that, but mm. yeah, that is the the sort of colloquial term for it. Uh, I mean, that's also just to. It's a little bit of a side note, but the way that it just falls down at the end as well, just straight down, doesn't tip over, uh, is also very problematic for the official story in in, in my view. Um, you know, John used this uh, analogy recently with me. He said, if you cut a tree down at the bottom is it going to fall have you ever seen a tree once you cut it at the bottom fall straight down and uh no they always it's always going to tip over uh i'll show you one more clip which i think is like key to look at because it um just to get a little closer view of this you can actually see how much structure there was still standing after the oh my god there's a lot Give of me the second tower just went a lot of the core is still standing there there's a part of the core that just falls off Another piece of the core falls off. It's just so crumbly. It looks like, I mean, how could that be structural steel? Something's happened to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that tree analogy is perfect. I know exactly what you are saying. It's so funny because the spire has been around for so long. The footage of it and uh, just, I never even thought about connecting the two, the two things until Jonathan Cole's presentation on the anniversary. Yeah, let me, uh, and then I, this also happened with the South Tower. So let's just show that real quick. Um, that's the next video that's there. Okay, let's add that in. One moment, ladies and gentlemen, here it comes. So first you see the top come down and I'll alert you when we could see some of the cores. There the top of the building basically explodes. And soon the camera's going to pan down and you're going to see some of the core structure still standing there. That there, right there in the middle. And now it just falls straight down. Hmm. Uh, and so this is actually, this is actually acknowledged by NIST. Uh, let me, uh, one second, I want to pull up this. This is actually in NIST, in, the, in NIST FAQs on the Twin Towers. They're actually, NIST is trying to explain this is trying to combat the idea of, of these towers came down so quickly they came down at almost free fall uh are you able to show that uh the new image that i uploaded andy uh i see a new video here tell me if uh let's see oh there's an image right here okay right, right so there, waiting for it okay faq 31 they say how could the twin towers how could the towers collapse only 11 seconds and nine seconds speeds that approximate that of a ball drop from a similar height in a vacuum so they're trying to respond to that whole area and then at the bottom of this i've it's highlighted from video evidence significant portions of the cores of both buildings roughly 60 stories of world trade center one and 40 stories of world trade center two are known to have stood 15 to 25 seconds after collapse initiation before they too began to collapse 
So NIST agrees, Jonathan Cole agrees, and yet for the ASCE, it's um, it's insufficient technical content that the core the cores of both buildings remain standing. Um, I'm just gonna, Ted, remedy. I'm going to pause you for one second. Remedy this yeah. though, because it seems like NIST adopted Bazan's pile driver theory. So how can they adopt that and yet acknowledge this? Well, the, there's a there's a obviously there's a clear contradiction there, but nobody's really paying attention <laughs> to it. You know, there's there's all sorts of contradictions in the NIST report. If you if you go over, yeah, okay, maybe I'm stating the obvious, but yeah, <laughs> I would if I was them, I'd probably say, well, you know, the pile driver was there at the start, but then it disintegrated by the end, and so you know, reality is messy, something like that. But um, I don't know if that's that's, that's what they're thinking. That's what that's probably the likely response. The, the problem is that Bazant has hung his hat on the idea that the top really remained intact until the bottom. Until yeah, that crush up thing once it hits the ground, that's pure fantasy. I mean, you can kind of see the thing disintegrating pretty early on during the yeah. collapse. There's nothing there to crush up. Yeah. It's all scattered over, you know, ground yeah. around. And let, let's actually show that because that's the next clip thing that I wanted to show here, just real quick to finish this off because there's a lot of people that haven't seen this stuff before. Um, what is this? The last clip that you just uploaded? Uh, I've got two more things. Just the Byzant, the Byzant um, schematic. Okay, wait. Let me. Okay, uh, so it hasn't been uploaded yet. All right. See coming a picture out, coming, coming through here. Do -do. They only let us upload a certain amount at a time, folks. So we're catching up as we go along here. But there's so many contradictions in the NIST report, and we have a supporter that finds them all the time and he submits them as questions and they're a little bit rhetorical, but they are great points, things that we don't even think of. I'd like to put them all together in a single volume and uh, submit this to Nest as some kind of, I don't know, request for correction or whatever the proper terminology is. That's what that's Ted's department, but submit that to them to address because uh, this guy is a, a pro at finding these contradictions. Andy, it's, oh, not doing that graphic. it's not allowing me to, even though I've deleted the, the ones that I already uploaded, it's not allowing me to upload anymore because I've reached my limit, unfortunately. You've reached your limit. Okay. Well, mm. um, I think we are familiar with, and, and I'm going to, if you want, Ted, um, oh, well, I can't get that up, but we're all familiar with the image. And if you're not, you can find it in Bizant's report. I believe, uh, oh, I know that it's in my graphic novel born on 9-11 because I had to recreate it. But there is a graphic showing the top block coming down and there's uh, several stages uh, of this as it crushes down. And then in the last final stages, there's a crush up period. And then the, the it kind of looks cute. The top block just kind of turns into this pile of the debris at the end. And the pictures are kind of like these little doodles uh, that either Bazant or somebody on his staff did. Um, and that's what we see. That's what you're describing, correct? Yes. And I, I actually just emailed you uh, Bazant's image and John Cole's, which is the one that people haven't really seen before, which is worth looking at. Uh, if you if you're able to to download that and bring it up, all right. I'm not sure if I can bring my email up at this moment. I can try, okay. but go ahead and just talk about your analysis with that. And if we can get the graphic up, we will. Well, basically, what John did in his paper was he drew a accurate schematic of you know similar to Byzantz, but showing what actually happened, which is the top starts to come down, top disappears, then you just have the the building sort of mushrooming and you know ejecting laterally. And then the, the spire still standing there as as the outer parts of the building keep being ejected laterally, um, and so it was, it's worth seeing that um, that graphic. But in any case, the reason we the reason we got into this is because you wanted to talk about you know sort of the 
connections to NIST and the corruption and uh, that's happening at AE, ASCE, sadly. And so these, the journal, the, the editor at the Journal of Structural Engineering who rejected John's paper after two days uh, is actually works very closely with Therese McAllister at NIST, who is, she's basically, the, she was basically the second most, most important person on the NIST investigation. And his, he, he is the head of a, a research center at Colorado State University that receives $4 million a year in funding from NIST. And it's called like, uh, what do I got here? Um, the NIST funded, it's actually part of the name, the NIST funded Center of Excellence for Risk-Based Community Resilience Planning. Um, and so, and, and Therese McAllister, like that's her thing now. That's what she does at NIST. Like her job at NIST is the community resilience group leader um, at the, at the uh, engineering laboratory at NIST. She is also the technical point, point of contact for the NIST funded Center of Excellence Center for risk-based community resilience planning. So she works with the chief editor of the Journal of Structural Engineering on a daily basis. This is the gentleman who rejected John Cole's paper in, in two days. So again, another very obvious conflict of interest. And what I was what I spoke to before, this sort of community, and I'm sure Richard could describe it almost better than me, but this community of researchers, thinkers, engineers who are protecting the, the holy scripture of the progressive collapse of the Twin Towers, the supposed progressive collapse of the Twin Towers. Yeah, Richard, your comments on this, does that seem like a conflict of interest to you? Um, yeah, I, I wonder how hard it would be to find someone who's not sort of somehow connected with all this to uh, make an independent review. I mean, there are a lot of engineers in America, so maybe, but, um, you know, all this talk about um, sort of connections between reviewers and authors and so on, it reminded me that, um, when I was having those discussions with Bizant, he was attaching a lot of his papers to um, the, you know, his replies, um, papers that I'd already read for the most part, but um, he attached probably not intentionally a document that contained an email thread for when um, his co-author, uh, Liang was um, uh, sending their paper in the, the 20, 2010 paper, was it? Um, anyway, um, that paper into the Journal of Engin Engineering Mechanics, um, Bazant had a list of, of uh, suggested reviewers, right? Now, some, some, some journals do ask you for suggested reviewers. Uh, nobody asked us for suggested reviewers of our paper, which would have been kind of useful. Um, <laughs> we, we, we sort of know a lot of engineers um, <laughs> who could have maybe taken a more favorable look at it, but he, he submitted a list of five or six uh, names. And um, of course, then we can Google the names and find out that there were various, you know, co-authors and graduate students and postdoc researchers that worked for him and so on. I, I don't think any of those names, from what I recall, were um, independent. You know, they all would have had a, you know, a motive to uh, accept his paper. Yeah. We don't know if yeah. reviews were used, of course, but just just the idea that he's sort of chatting with the um, the chief editor, hey, you know, hey George or whatever, or one of the board board of um, board of the journal, you know, hey George, you know, we've we got a paper ready. Here's some reviewers that you might want to use. You know, it's all very chummy, right? Uh, we didn't get that sort of um, opportunity ourselves. And Ted, I don't know if you mentioned this or not. If you, if you did, I didn't hear it. But you mentioned something about some of the editors working with a um, a group that gets millions from NIST each year. Talk a little bit and elaborate on that further. 
Yeah, so I just I mentioned it, but didn't fully elaborate that the 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 chief editor of the Journal of Structural Engineering, his name is John Vandalit. He's a professor at Colorado State University. He's the head of this research center that NIST funds. They have a twenty million dollar you know five year uh, grant from NIST. Uh, this is the second one, so they've already been doing it for many years. And he works basically like you can deduce that he works probably almost on a daily basis or at least a weekly basis with Therese McAllister, who was one of the lead investigators in the NIST uh, World Trade Center investigation. So he's going to obviously be very biased and not wanting to, um, you know, publish. He's going to say very biased, but he has proved himself to be in the way he handled the paper uh, to to not want to uh, allow John Cole's criticism to be published. Um, Bizant's paper does the, the paper that Bizant published in the spring does, um, you know, mention the NIST report and, and sort of applauds the NIST report as it, helping us ex- understand how the, the collapse is initiated. Um, and then he he notes, just as we note, that NIST doesn't go any further than collapse initiation. And that's sort of where he's um, where he's picking up the slack. But even the there was also the, the, the guest editor of this special series on progressive collapse that invited Bizant to do the to write this new paper. He was also at Colorado, Colorado State. Also, he is at Colorado State. He was formerly one of the directors of this this research institute and you know working with uh, Therese um, McAllister. Uh, there was a point that I wanted to make that now I forget, um, but oh, shoot, it's escaped me now. But it had to do with what Richard was was just saying. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was oh. just thinking with this coal paper, you know, even if it's I haven't read it yet, even if it's not sort of perfect, it's obviously making some pretty uh, solid points. Um, it's getting some things right, and um, you know, in a healthy and sort of well-functioning scientific community. Um, you want to get that kind of input. Um, the idea that you're just going to just silence certain people because, oh, well, that's not the viewpoint that we have, that's off message and so on. It's, it's really a sign of sickness, a deep sickness, I think, in, in uh, science. Well, that's the situation out there, folks. Nothing surprises me anymore. But here's the deal. Even if they build a big iron fortress around this, even if they dig a moat, fill it with alligators, metaphorically, all of this, I mean, of course, uh, we're going to still keep going. And history will know. Your grandkids are going to know what you did. We'll make sure of it. And this is going to live on in the record for the future. And people will know what kind of challenges we faced uh, during this time period, because I know we have them on the science and they have to, of course, invent all of these excuses to avoid dealing with that. But I got a lot of time uh, to go forward and do this. Any final thoughts, Ted? I just want to add and then you know, let, let Richard weigh in as well. But I just want to make very clear that, you know, we are going to uh, insist that this uh, disciplinary proceeding goes forward if we can't get a technically reasoned decision from Ulm on Richard and Tony's paper. So that's going to happen. Uh, we're going to be able to make the case in front of the ASCE board, the national board, that all these, uh, you know, that all these injustices were done to Richard and Tony and preventing their paper from being published. And who knows what could happen there. And we're going to fight on John's paper as well. John is going to appeal the decision and maybe even consider going as far as filing an ethics complaint if we have to uh, because of the obvious conflicts of interest and because of the sort of just, you know, brash way in which his paper was rejected when, as Richard said, in a, in a real healthy scientific uh, environment, like that paper would, would obviously be published and allow the, allow the original authors to respond to it. Why is the editor acting as the protector of, of Byzantine Lay? Um, but yeah, Richard, do you want to add anything? 
Uh, I was just thinking about peer review. I mean, there's a lot of people talking about how peer review is not really doing what it's supposed to um, a lot of the time, that it, it can be used as sort of a gatekeeper uh, to stifle stifle debate often. And, um, you know, a lot of people are looking at alternatives, but that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother discussion. But we're not the only people that are kind of pointing out these kinds of problems. All right, guys. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Keep following this. We'll keep you updated. If you're not signed up for our emails, do so. But, Ted, Richard, thank you for coming on 9-11 Freefall today. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go, another 9-11 Freefall. Remember, if you have suggestions for how to improve the show, you can write to us at ae911truth.org or 911freefall.com. But for my part, this is Andy Steele saying we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.